Good evening and welcome to episode 39, episode 39 of the Political Mind Podcast. It's a privilege and honor to have uh, author uh, Tim Alston back on the show tonight. Uh, for 44 years, uh, Mr. Alston received industry awards for marketing and public relations, higher education, administration, and customer service retention expertise uh, with private universities, uh, multinational PR agencies, and a broadcast satellite service company. Then more importantly, God revealed to him uh, his special calling or ministry uh, for servant leadership, uh, recovering from his own addiction to self, egoholism, as he calls it, as well as embracing uh, his lifelong personal and professional leadership from the middle. Now, most importantly, uh, Mr. Alston has dedicated his life uh, to creating services and products addressing both egoholism, recovering, and silver medal leadership achieving your number one-ness by embracing your number two-ness. Uh, as a result, he's written and published in 2017, Seven Steps to Manage Ego Problems, The How-To Guide for Somebody Else, a free downloadable ebook on his website, uh, www.timalston.com. Uh, in 2020, uh, Mr. Alston published the, the U.S. Coronavirus Crisis and the Rise of the Silver Metal Leaders. And he, this past March of 2021, uh, Tim Alston has published his third book uh, entitled U.S. Politics, The Rise of Silver Medal Leaders, which recaps the 2020 presidential election in light of uh, Bible best practices and the servant leadership style of Jesus Christ. Mr. Tim Alston, it's a privilege to have you back, sir. Um, I'm excited to you know just dive in into uh, your newest work. Uh, but I want to ask you first, what inspired you, sir, uh, to write such a book? Um, as the U.S. politics, uh, the rise of the silver medal leaders, um, because I read where you, you know you credit Oprah Winfrey uh, with this book structure. Um, can you explain to the audience, please, sir? Certainly can. But first of all, Michael Hardy, congratulations to you, Mr. Graduate. We are so proud of you here for recently graduating from Howard University School of Law, and I had the privilege of actually meeting you last Saturday night when you chose to come back to your original undergraduate HBCU alma mater and march and receive your degree. So congratulations to you. Uh, we're very, very proud of you and keep it up. Um, you're right. Back in 1989, I read an article in Esquire magazine. At the end of that year, the end of that decade, they were uh, had a round table, much like you do now, a round table of celebrities. And we're asking them what were some of their forecasts for the new decade, the 1990s. And one of the questions they asked was, what is the book that everybody should read? Oprah Winfrey, who was a rising star at the time said, everybody should read the Bible. And her quote was, every question, every answer to every question that man could ever pose has already been given. And that caught me off guard. I said, wow. And as I started writing this book some 32 years later, I began to think of what I call the Oprah Winfrey challenge and that every answer is in the Bible. So I said, okay, I've got a number of political questions that will serve as the title for my different chapters. And let me try to prove or disprove Oprah Winfrey to see if the Bible had actual answers to those questions. So yes, in many ways I credit and thank Oprah Winfrey for throwing out what I call the Oprah Winfrey challenge back in 1989 in Esquire magazine. So, uh, Mr. Alston, um, you know, this past February on the 25th, um, during that podcast, 
um, when I interviewed you about your earlier work, uh, which was entitled The U.S. Coronavirus Crisis and the Rise of uh, Silver Medal Leaders. Um, and now this book, too, is entitled U.S. Politics, the Rise of Silver Medal Leaders. Uh, can you refresh our memories as to what is a silver medal leader for those who are unfamiliar with that terminology? Surely. Silver medal leader is a person who achieves their number oneness by embracing their number two-ness. The characteristics of a silver medal leader, these are leaders from the middle. The characteristics are basically threefold that are embodied within its name. Number one, you're a silver medal leader if you report to someone in your organization. That organization could be your family. That organization could be your social buddies. It could be your workplace or your place of worship. That makes you silver because you report to someone. Secondly, you um, when you do your task with character, with fortitude, and with courage, then you have metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. And finally, when you do your job, not be when you succeed, not because of your title, not because of your position, but because you have influence and relationships, which are the key characteristics integral to being a leader. So a silver medal leader is one who reports to someone, is someone who does their job with fortitude, character, and courage, and they also succeed because of their influence and relationships. That makes you a silver metal leader. And the prime example, the role model for that is Jesus Christ. And so when I wrote this book, U.S. Politics, The Rise of Silver Metal Leaders, I began to see that the race to the White House and the victory for the White House was achieved by people who were silver metal leaders. So I have to ask, sir, could you dive in and get specific? You know, who in this past election cycle and, you know, even now, um, you know, politics has changed, you know, dramatically since January the 6th. Yes. Uh, not, maybe not dramatically, but has taken it. it new norms have been broken. Yes. Um, and so I want to ask you, sir, if you can dive into who, in your view, since you're the author, uh, would be considered or would qualify as a silver medal leader right now. Certainly. Certainly. Well, we can go right from the top. Um, and what I do in the book, Michael, is my chapter titles ask political questions, but they are answered by biblical best practices. For example, chapter number one or eight raises the question, why did American voters elect Biden and Harris? The answer to that question I found in the Bible in the story of the woman who had the issue of blood. And if you know, the story says basically this woman who had an issue of blood, she'd been struggling for 12 years with this issue, heard that Jesus was coming to town. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And she did. And Jesus said, who touched me? The disciples said, well, there are a bunch of people around you, Jesus. In so many words, all these people, these groupies around you are trying to get a selfie with you. And why do you mean somebody touched you? And so he said, no, no, somebody touched me in a real way. They had a real need. Well, Biden and Harris touched the American electorate because they felt that they felt what they felt. Now, what do I mean? Biden and Harris were the American people themselves. For example, Biden and Harris each had lost efforts to win job promotions. Biden and Harris, or Biden, for example, had, for, had lost relatives. He lost his first wife to death. He lost his first daughter. 
And then he lost his first son, Bo Biden, later on. 57% of Americans have had a close loss in their family, so they can relate to them. Also, roughly 52% of children in this country have witnessed a parental divorce. Kamala Harris and her sister had witnessed their parents' divorce. And so there was that level of feeling there. Also, and many of us, when we if we watch Joe Biden speak carefully, we'll notice the fact that he is a part of the 1% of the population, or 3 million people, that have a stutter. He has a stutter. And when it comes to Kamala Harris, uh, she certainly represents those who have experienced racial and gender discrimination. They feel and they felt, and Americans felt that they could relate to them. On the other hand, the opponent to Joe Biden, um, the incumbent President uh, Trump, always sought to present the image of invincibility. Nothing was ever wrong. And the American people said, you know, once we got to know this guy, he does not feel what we feel. And we certainly saw it when it came to, and I say, it's his alleged uh, COVID-19 positive test. I sincerely believe, and many believe, he never really had it. It was a it was a campaign prop that failed, and so that was chapter one. Chapter two raises the question: Why did Biden pick Harris? And as I was reading my Bible, I read the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in John uh, chapter four. And when I read that story, I saw so many parallels, Mike, to Biden. I, I entitle it basically: Jesus and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well meet Joe Biden and the Senate woman at the first debate. And when you read that story in the Bible, you recognize the fact that both Jesus and that woman came to that well with unmet needs. Biden came to the first debate with an unmet need and Kamala Harris came and they were able to fuse themselves together. And what happened interestingly in that Bible story is Jesus used that Samaritan woman to be the first evangelist to the non-Jewish, non-traditional world. And obviously Kamala Harris spoke to a non-traditional world by her own being. Number one, she didn't go to Ivy League school. She went to an HBCU. She pledged a black sorority. And so, and she married a Jew who was a part of another despised group. So she was a person very much like the Samaritan woman. She was out of her league. In chapter three, I raised the question, who really brought the victory to Joe Biden? And I compare Joe Biden to Naaman the leper in the Bible, because Biden and um, and Naaman both had incurable diseases. Biden, I mean, uh, Naaman had the incurable disease of leprosy. Joe Biden had the incurable disease of never, ever being able to win a primary or caucus election since 1988. And it just goes on and on and on from there. This is very interesting. And so, uh, Mr. Alston, you know, you make the claim that this new book of yours, uh, U.S. Politics, The Rise of Silver Medal Leaders, is probably probably the first and only uh, post-2020 presidential election book written from a, a biblical perspective. Um, how can you make that claim? And, and why do you think that is the case? Why aren't there other works similar to yours? It's a very good question. When I began to write the book, because it was coming from my experience, uh, my Bible experience and reading the newspapers, combining the two. When I began to read, I began to do the research on whom else was doing a book of this sort. All of the books that I saw written from a Christian perspective were written by Christian evangelicals 
pre-election as they were predicting a Trump victory based upon their interpretation of the Bible. What I began to notice is that after the election, when Donald Trump lost, and for the record, Donald Trump did lose the election, when I began to notice the fact that there was an absolute silence from that community of the race because apparently they had lost. And so what I did was simply begin to put my book together and begin to show how there was a marriage of politics or news and also Bible best practices throughout the election. And so I was pleased to be able to do that because the majority, 80% of Americans claim to be followers of Christ. And so the book is political in nature. The election will backdrop, but the true message was how people in number two positions like Jesus Christ were the real heroes of our lives, the heroes of the Bible, and the heroes of the 2020 presidential election. In chapter three, I talk about Jim Clyburn, who was in a number two position in a Congress behind Nancy Pelosi. And he delivered the speech on February 26th that propelled Joe Biden into winning South Carolina and on to the Democratic nomination and the White House. What was so phenomenal about that speech, as good as it was, as I listened to it, Michael, I said, what, what, remind, what does the speech remind me of? And I thought back 44 years earlier when another black male Southern power broker delivered another powerful speech as such for another Democratic presidential challenger who ultimately beat a Republican presidential incumbent. And that person was Daddy King, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. At the 1976 Democratic National Convention, he delivered the benediction. I remember watching, I was in college at the time. He delivered the benediction for Jimmy Carter that rocked the house. And involuntarily after he prayed, and I talk about it in the book, people in the, in the Madison Square Garden where they were begin to link arms and start singing, we shall overcome. And I read a book called PR is in Prison, written by a Republican strategist who said that the result of Betty King's addiction was the whole focus of the Republican campaign to try to counterbalance that emotional high that swept Jimmy Carter into the White House. And, and you know, that's a good point. I was listening to an interview by Sam Donaldson, uh, who was in, I believe he was an NBC, either an ABC or NBC news correspondent. And in the interview, of course, he's reflecting on his time during that 1980 election. This is four years after the scenario you're talking about in 1980, when Jimmy Carter, the incumbent, is running against Ronald Reagan. Um, and Jimmy Carter gets the news um, that he will, you know, lose the election because it was an early election night. You know, it really didn't. It was not late. It was a Reagan landslide very early yeah. uh, that night. And so Jimmy Carter says, you know, the most painful moment of this whole campaign process was listening to Jerry Falwell say, finally, we'll have a Christian in the White House. He said that really hurt. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just to pinpoint of what your your point just now in terms of the we shall overcome emotional high that seemed to fuel uh, the Jimmy Carter rise. Of course, there was also the, the, the backlash with Watergate and other factors to consider. Um, but I just thought that was interesting uh, because we also see after that uh, the rise of televangelism. Um, and so... Uh, do you do you address televangelism at all? Or if not, what are your thoughts on that as it pertains to 
politics during the Reagan era? And are we entering a point where um, that kind of stronghold that the conservative uh, movement had on the right, is that waning in any way to you? Well, what I'm seeing, televangelism is a powerful, powerful tool, certainly because we have more technology and more television. We're seeing much more televising of the gospel, and that's important. I think it's very, very good, Mike, and we should embrace it. Um, when the Bible tells us, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world as a witness to all nations, you know, people my age grew up with tents and crusades and that kind of a thing. Little did we realize how powerful the ministry of Jesus Christ would go through the television and the internet airwaves. As with anything, it can be abused, it can be misused, and we've also seen that happen. What we are seeing now, Michael, in my estimation, is the fact of, of watching those who lost the election, trying to claim that they did not lose the election, claim that it was stolen. I just wrote a piece this week on Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney, to me, is kind of like Simon Peter. She was, like he was, a right-wing zealot. But in this instance, we're witnessing in Congress, she told the truth. And what was important is that Jesus told his disciples, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a witness, but don't take any thought of what you may say. I will give you your words. I'm not a, a fan or a supporter of much of what Liz Cheney says, but when it comes to telling the truth, as she is doing, she's exposing the big lie. And the other thing that she is doing is the Bible says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. Because our enemies help to, our response to our enemies helps to sharpen our focus and give us another viewpoint. What she is doing, in my judgments, very stealthily, is she's giving her party another viewpoint because if they keep thinking like they're thinking and doing what they're doing, there are a lot more elections that they're going to be losing. So, sir, um, you know, if you would, uh, could you walk us through, uh, as time is running short with, the, with, with us, um, could you walk us through, you know, this latest work of yours? More specifically, um, you know, how does each chapter's title uh, ask a political question uh, that gets answered by a best practice from the Bible? Well, in the for example, in chapter one, the question was, why did American voters uh, elect Biden and Harris? The answer, I say, was in the story of the woman uh, with the issue of blood. Then I also throw in the fact that ask James Brown because James Brown's most popular song was, wow, I feel good, da, 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 da. American voters felt good about Biden and Harris. And it's all getting proved over and over again, Mike, with what we're seeing in the polls, what we're seeing with stimulus check, what we're seeing with the infrastructure package, what we're seeing with the fight against the COVID-19. Chapter two raised the question, why did Biden and Harris? And I parallel Biden and Harris at the first debate with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. In chapter three, I raised the question, who propelled Biden to victory? Who won the White House? And there I compare Naaman the leper, the incurable leper, to Joe Biden, the incurable loser, and compare those two. In chapter four, I raised the question, who was the father of the Black Lives Matter movement that really propelled young people and minorities into the election process that brought the victory. 
And there I use, I talk about Jesus talking to his disciples and saying there was never a man born of a woman like John. Here he was talking about John the Baptist and I parallel John the Baptist to John Lewis, who was the father of the Black Lives Matter movement, who was the, and he was the silver medalist behind Dr. King. We talk about Dr. King's speech, I have a dream, but right before his speech, John Lewis spoke. In chapter five, I raised the question, um, who were the who were the essential people behind the scenes? Number one, it was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Number two, it was uh, um, nurse Sandra Lindsay, the sister from Jamaica who was the first vaccinee. And also was Dr. Alistair Martin from Massachusetts General Hospital who began registering voters in the ER at the hospital and also postal workers who behind the scene made sure that we people could get their mail-in ballots. And then I also, I also raised the question in chapter six, how did he go from TV's Trump, you're fired, to American voters saying, Trump, you're fired? And I talk about the how and the why and the when Donald Trump lost the election. And the point that I make in the book that one will have to read, he didn't lose the election on November 3rd. He actually lost the election on October 7th. Hmm. So I'm um, curious to know, you know, this uh, civil war, as President Biden had termed it, uh, that the GOP seems to be experiencing right now. Um, and there obviously is a winner in that, you know, Liz Cheney's chastised while Trump is embraced, even though Trump has, you know, under the leadership of Trump, they, the, the GOP has not done well electorally. You know, you just can't argue with that fact. I mean, you lost the Senate uh, just more recently, two years before that, you lose, you lose the House and you lose the U.S. presidency uh, just last November. Are there any parallels with uh, someone who has such a stronghold on, a, on an audience uh, the way Trump seems to have in the Bible? Yes, yes. What, I, what I've noticed, and I wrote a piece last week called Voter Suppression and the, and the Captivating Cookie Jar. There's a thing called the law of unintended consequences that says those things that you try so hard to do never really happen. The parallel to that comes from Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter one, when along came a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and he saw all of these Israelites and said, these people are going to overpower us. We've got to do something to contain them. Let's devise a plan, which came that 400-year enslavement of the Israelites. It didn't work. They increased in numbers and ultimately led to their liberation. What we are watching, Michael, with the voter suppression move, it will not succeed. Why? Because all of us, and, and, and even you, Michael, probably remember the experience growing up where your parents said to you as they were leaving the house, help yourself to anything you see in the kitchen, but don't go in the cookie jar. The only thing that was on your mind was going in the cookie jar because you were denied something. When you are trying to, as the GOPs are doing, trying to deny young people and people of color the right to vote, 47 out of 50 states now are putting in legislation, they will not succeed in stopping the vote. Because when you tell people they can't do something, all that does is fuel us. I remember here in Huntsville in 2012, they took three of our voting precincts and squeezed them into one with the thought of maybe that would be a disincentive to us going to vote. No, all our voting precincts, those three got into one, were squeezed into Oakwood University Church. I was in that group. Even though the polls officially closed at seven o'clock, 
we were wrapped around the church and the um, and the religion complex. The last voter, if you're in line at seven o'clock, you get to vote. The last person got to vote at 9 p.m. that evening. We were not going to be denied. And so I, I don't know what makes the GOP think that these voter suppression tactics are going to work. They will not work. And the Bible proves it's not going to work because Pharaoh tried to suppress the Israelites in enslavement, and they actually grew. All the GOP has to do is read the Bible and biblical best practices. They will not win. So, Mr. Austin, before I let you go, I have to ask, um, how can members of the audience get a copy or a digital copy uh, or even a printed copy of your book, um, as well as the, the new audio book for the U.S. Uh, coronavirus crisis and the rise of the civil metal leaders, the book that you we talked about last time? Uh, could you yeah. share how we can get access to that? Very simply, Michael, and thank you for asking. All they have to do is go to Amazon. Go to Amazon. My books are listed there on Amazon. The digital copy of um, what is it? Oh, this side, yeah. The digital copy of the U.S. coronavirus crisis. Also, the uh, the print version of it right there, and also the audiobook version. If they also go to, to um, Amazon, they will also be able to get a copy of uh, this book, The U.S. Politics and the Rise of Silver Medal Leaders. Hopefully, before the end of the month, I'll have the print version of U.S. Politics out. And sometime later in the month of June on Amazon and probably also get on my website, I will also have the audiobook version. I look forward to people getting those books, reading those books, seeing the message of God come through with politics simply being the backdrop. And I would definitely appreciate them writing a book review and leaving it on Amazon. And lastly, uh, Mr. Alston, you know, what is your next work? Uh, do you have anything in the works right now? And if so, could you share some light on what we should look for in the future. Well, Mike, you always have a habit of trying to pull out of me what I don't really want to share, but because it's you, counselor, I will share that. The next book I have intended is called Pro Basketball, The Rise of Silver Medal Leaders. I'm a basketball junkie, unapologetically. And um, here I talk about Kyrie Irving versus Steph Curry. I also talk about my basketball hero, Bill Russell versus Will Chamberlain. I also talk about Michael Jordan versus Scottie Pippen because the parallels there between one being a silver medal leader, such Steph Curry, who took a back seat to bring in uh, Kevin Durant to win championships, and the role of Bill Russell, who took a back seat as a scorer in high school, college, and the Olympics so that others could score and six other people could become in the Hall of Fame and they won championships, and how Will Chamberlain, took a back seat from being the scoring uh, person he was to becoming the assist man and the Philadelphia 76ers in 1966, 67 won their first championship. And so the parallels about silver medal leaders are all over. We just have to look. And the Bible has best practices to back up that because Jesus is the ultimate silver medal leader because if there, there could be no us without Jesus, Embrace achieving his number oneness, embracing his number twoness. Well, Mr. Alston, it's a privilege and an honor again to have you back on the show. I want to uh, encourage the audience members to go ahead as on Amazon, as he instructed, and look for his book, um, U.S. Politics: The Rise of Civil Metal Leaders. Very interesting work, and if you're interested, get the first one too: uh, U.S. Coronavirus: uh, Rise of Civil Metal Leaders. Mr. Alston, thank you so much. Now we're going to go ahead and tune our attention. Uh, to our dynamic panel. Thank you so much.
Thank you and much success to you, lawyer. Well, folks, we've got a show tonight. Hold on, hold on for a second. Folks, we've got a big show tonight. Uh, we've got so much to discuss, as always. Uh, but, you know, just to recap on the unpredictable week we've just experienced, we're talking about White House, the White House seeking to calm public the panic, the public's panic um, in terms of buying Southeast oil because of the gas stations in that region running dry. And then we have Representative Liz Cheney saying uh, she would not remain silent despite being ousted as the number, thir number three uh, GOP leader in the House of Representatives. Uh, we've got Senate Democrats being skeptical of extending $300 of unemployment benefits and the Senate GOP gearing up for a vote reform fight. Uh, and we've got, even on the gubernatorial side, candidate Youngkin seeking to reverse the GOP's uh, Trump era carnage. So, so much to dive into uh, such unpredictable topics, <laughs> but I'm also excited to have uh, this dynamic panel tonight. Uh, some are familiar faces and some are new, and so that's what makes me excited. Always great to have new faces. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and introduce uh, a new face on the show, uh, a, prof a favorite professor of mine, a professor, uh, Raul, um, I'm sorry, professor, he was actually my housing discrimination professor, Professor Raul Andrews Jr. Uh, professor uh, Raul Andrews Jr. Uh, Esquire is a senior attorney, nonprofit executive, and an adjunct law professor at the Howard University School of Law. Uh, among other civic, civic engagements, he is an executive board member of the Bar of the Bar Association of DC, the Thurgood Marshall Center Trust, and the National Chairman of Public Policy for Kappa uh, Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. And I want to disclose that even though uh, Professor uh, Raul is present here tonight, his presence in no way is an endorsement of the AARP, uh, um, that nonprofit organization, or at all. Uh, he's strictly here in his own capacity, representing his own views, and I'm thankful that he's here to do so. So, Professor Rao, uh, I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, I'm going to now turn my attention a little bit to uh, another new face, uh, Tope Aladatimi. Uh, Tena Tope um, is a recent law school graduate from Howard University School of Law. She was just hooded this past Friday, February, um, uh, May 7th, 2021. Her areas of interest are in employment law, civil rights law, and environmental law. At Howard, uh, law, at Howard Law School, uh, she served as the president of the African Law Students Association and was a member of the Movement Lawyer and Clinic, the Human and Civil Rights Clinic, and the Environmental Justice Center. She's also submitted an amicus brief uh, to the Supreme Court and has sent letters to the United Nations on issues of protester rights and police violence. Uh, Tenetope is looking forward to embarking on her legal journey uh, doing public interest work. And on a personal note, you know, I've served with Tope in these capacities too. I've, I've witnessed her brilliance up close. Um, so that's what really makes me excited to have her her views represented tonight. Um, and I want to turn my attention to, to a, someone who is a friend of the political mic, who's, you know, commonly on here and someone who's every time she's on here, it's a dynamic show. And that's Jasmine Bonner, uh, who was born and raised in the gateway to the West, St. Louis, Missouri. Upon graduation from one of two historically black colleges and universities in Missouri, uh, Harris-Stowe State University, uh, Jasmine moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue a career serving the people of her hometown as a congressional intern for former Congressman William Lacey Clay Jr., uh, who serves in M Missouri's first district. Uh, after the completion of her internship, Jasmine began the staff became staff assistant 
uh, for Congressman Gerald Nadler of New York's 10th Congressional District, and who is also the chairman of the House Committee on the Judiciary. Uh, currently, Jasmine serves as Special Assistant for United States Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. Uh, by serving in these roles over the last three years, uh, Jasmine witnessed essential hearings that laid the foundation for the case of the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. Uh, she's also one of the very few personal staffers to be present actually on the Senate floor uh, during the trial of the former president. As a result, Jasmine has had the unique opportunity to see firsthand the entire impeachment process from inception to reality. In addition to her time spent as a staffer in both the House and Senate, she currently serves as the president for the Senate Black Legislative Staff Caucus, uh, which is a 2021, I'm sorry, and also a 2021 University of Texas at Austin LBJ Women's Campaign School Changemaker uh, and a steadfast advocate for upward mobility of HBCU. So Dasmond, uh, it goes without saying that she's someone who's engaged, someone who is very knowledgeable as it pertains to public policy, um, and someone who's just in the arena. Uh, so it's exciting to have her back. And then I wanna go ahead and introduce again, uh, Mr. Egu Nuangpa. Uh, it was, it's always a, a privilege and an honor to have him uh, on the show. Uh, uh, Egu Nuangpa uh, was a vice president of one of the largest financial service institutions in the world. Uh, but currently he actually just accepted a position um, and this position is actually a, uh, at Cushman and Wakefield. Uh, and he starts on Monday. Um, so he's no longer with Bank of America, but this is a huge opportunity and we're glad to have someone from the private sector also represented on the panel tonight. Um, but Mr. Nwangpa was also a manager in the uh, Dilatoy's uh, Financial Services Group of Dilioti um, and Touche LLP. Um, that in that role, he provided uh, auditing, accounting, advisory services to both public and private clients, inclusive of banks, broker deals, and mortgage banks. Uh, Egu has also um, more than 20 years of combined relevant experience in the realms of internal audit and advisory services, vendor management, and diversity. Uh, Mr. Rongpa, thank you for being back. I'm so excited to have you back, sir. And last but not least uh, for the night will be uh, Camilla Ahmad, who is a former director of the campus programs and regional political director uh, for, for former Senator Doug Jones uh, during his U.S. Senate um you know, tenure. Uh, Kamala uh, has also is, is also a social worker, visual artist, and a political activist from San Francisco, California. She's a graduate of Oakland University. She's a part of the class of 2017. Uh, Kamala, uh, I'm sorry, Camilla has a background in social work with field experience in medical social work, human rights advocacy, crisis services, and child welfare. She serves as an elected member of the Alabama Democratic Party's executive board and is currently working as a campaign consultant. Uh, and pursuing a master's in public administration with a concentration in public policy. Uh, I can't, you know, this panel is so it's outstanding, uh, but I wanna dive right into, you know, one of the biggest headlines of the day, and that is uh, the removal of uh, Representative Liv Cheney of, of Wyoming from being the number, the number three top GOP member in the House. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what this means uh, for the future of the Republican Party. Uh, folks have been characterizing this as a full embrace um, of the Trump wing of the party um, and a rejection of the Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney's wing of the party. Um, and there are a lot of people who have created some speculation as to what this would mean uh, for the next midterm election, because all eyes seem to be diverted to that already. Now, I wanna ask you panelists, in your view, what? 
what is so significant about uh, the removal of Liz Cheney in the long term? Uh, what does this mean for the party going forward? Uh, will the party remain uh, viable to win elections in you know, moderate areas because of the fact that Trump lost? Uh, and as I talked with uh, Tim Alston, not just lost himself, but he caused the GOP to lose the Senate in this last, this last election and even before that, the House in 2018. Anyone can jump in. I'm excited to, hit you, to get your thoughts on this. I'll be first. Um, <clears throat> it was interesting, really, that someone who has been such a steadfast Republican, um, I mean, up really, literally up until a few months ago, is now being scapegoated as the worst thing to ever happen to the party. Um, it, 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 it's a reminder of the fundraising capability and the ability to rise up a portion that's loyal to the GOP um, that they weren't able to reach before the disen uh, disenfranchised um, people in the in the in the uh, in the Republican Party still clinging to the words that they think Donald Trump is saying because he can't even speak on social media, and that's all come to be the foil of Liz Cheney, who who's likely. Uh, pushed right into the 2024 presidential campaign as of today, um, almost officially. So what's also interesting is that in the meeting, which, you know, by the way, it's noteworthy that this vote was taken in secret. Um, Liz Cheney had said, you know, I promise you this after today, I will be leading to the fight to restore our party and our nation to conservative principles, to defeating socialism, to defending our public to making the GOP worthy again of being a party of Lincoln. Uh, she also, according to sources in the room, ended her remarks in a prayer, citing a Bible verse, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Now, to me, this is just liberating for her because now to me, she becomes the most free politician on Capitol Hill right now, even if she loses the election. Remember when John Kasich uh, came on the DNC stage, which was such a big deal uh, for a Republican governor who's, you know, you go down his his list of public policy issues. He's conservative as it as it gets, uh, but he found himself still in the midst of the Democratic National Convention making the case against his own party. I'm thinking, you know, down the line, Liz Cheney would not just serve as a thorn in the side, but actually serve as a constant rebuke, uh, an embodiment that is a rebuke uh, to this party. Because when you think of Liz Cheney's voting record, and it's been talked about, um, you know, she's voted with Trump, uh, I think, seventy something percent of the time, as opposed to the person. Uh, Stefanik, who's going to replace her, um, who is more moderate, uh, which is amazing because it shows you that the, the, the focus is no longer on public policy, it seems. Um, I want to get your thoughts as to, you know, what do you think Liz Cheney's role is going forward um, and the aftermath of what just took place uh, this past Wednesday? Anyone? Well, I'll go. Um, Mike, thank you again so much for having me on. Um, you know, I'm Always so happy to join you and talk about these incredible topics. Um, in terms of Liz Cheney and where she goes from here, um, she gets a bigger platform. Um, she's able to talk to those Republicans who, um, you know, at the beginning they were so energized by Trump and now they're very turned off. These are the people that voted for Biden because they felt like they had no other way um, to vote. 
Um, so she's going to be using that voice and being able to amplify her voice now without having to worry about the backing of the party to not worry about whether she's going to be reprimanded um, for speaking her truth about this president and the big lie, because this is essentially what it's about. They're taking her out of that position because people are still saying that January 6th, you know, it was a result of, you know, patriotism and that this election was stolen. And because of that, um, and her speaking her truth, she is now able to, you know, go against the grain. You have people like Kevin McCarthy, who, I mean, him and Lindsey Graham, I just really do not know what to do with them. Like, they really do not have a backbone. They kind of like sway with the wind. It's like today they're on this side, the next day they're here, or it's like in the next hour and next 20 minutes, they're wherever you want to blow them, that's where they are. So I feel like she has this incredible backing from Republican who, you know, came out after, um, you know, the Women's March, who were crying and complaining about Trump and how he was this and how he was that and how evangelicals didn't agree with him and all the rest of that stuff. So those are the people that Liz Cheney, um, those are the people that she's communicating to and who she's going to be building her foundation um, moving forward, not just for midterms, but for the next um, the next presidential election. So uh, veteran GOP representative uh, Virginia Fox of North Carolina, who actually introduced a formal resolution to remove uh, Cheney uh, yesterday during this closed door meeting, said the old saying for leaders is if no one is following you, you're the you're only taking a walk. Uh, and she said, you, Liz Cheney, are only taking a walk. I want to get your thoughts on, you know, this notion that, you know, what she the stance that Liz Cheney took. And, all you know, when you bald, when you look at this, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy that the fact that you're saying that the election was was not stolen. That's it. That's the grounds for this whole thing. Um, you know, that's really what's you know driving this whole move, this dramatic e effort to remove her. Um, which you know, it goes also goes to show that the Republicans who were in, uh, reluctant to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene, it, it it wasn't that they didn't want to turn on their own. It was just that they they had priorities, and that one wasn't part of their priorities because at the same time she was walking lockstep with Trump. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on this mischaracterization of Cheney's role uh, of leadership. Uh, do you think this will be effective uh, characterizing this as just a quote unquote walk? Um, so I was just going to say that I completely disagree with that. Um, I feel like Liz Cheney is taking a very powerful stance in, you know, going against what majority of her party and constituents um, want because they do and they are still siding with Trump. So I feel like if anything, um, you know, similar to what Jasmine was saying, there are quite a few Republicans who, you know, don't like Trump um, and don't support him. And I feel like she is appealing to this new side of things, especially because ever since Trump, you know, and his presidency, the Republican Party completely changed. And there was a lot of tension within the party. And so I feel like now with Liz Cheney speaking out, um, I feel like she's going to really appeal to these other people who are not sure about, you know, their future with the Republican Party. Um, and I think that if anything, her platform is going to get larger um, and she's going to serve as a leader for those individuals. And to also just like jump in really quickly, let us not forget 
Liz Cheney's job as the number three in the Republican Party was to help set an agenda and priorities for their party, which now seems like their party and the agenda is to continue this lie to go over into the midterm to try to get more seats back. And because she went against that agenda, they no longer she no longer is serving her purpose. So it's time for her to go. So that's like something that I'm, I'm constantly being very mindful of when thinking about how flimsy um, these arguments are and these Republicans are when it comes to, um, you know, talking about their morals and their values and, and structure and different things like that. Yeah. And uh, let me jump back in before we jump off this topic because it's sensitive. Um, I went to sleep one night this week agreeing with Liz Cheney, and that was a tough night of sleep uh, for me uh, because I never thought that would happen in, in this world. <clears throat> um, let's not take anything away from political calculation, right? Even all the people who she's going against right now who believe the big lie, if she was ever to become the candidate, they would all vote for her. Right now, she's making a play for the middle. Um, she's making a play to appear reasonable. She's making a, a play to be in the direction of people that people consider serious. So I, I, I won't give it all to her as, you know, her shining moment of having this um, th th this feeling of, of patriotism. But I put some of it towards political calculus. Camilla, I, I think you're going to say something. I was. I'm trying to. Um, I think going back to the question about. Um, what does this mean for the GOP? I almost want to ask them that question, right? Like, what does this mean for you guys? <laughs> you know, how, what's the, what, how are we moving forward? Cause we talked about it before with the removal of Trump from the office, there was almost some, some sort of like, there was some friction there, right? Because the GOP was sort of claiming and, and, and making their, their, their like stance very clear that at the end of the day, our loyalty is to the GOP. So then to sort of like reprimand and exile in, in many ways, someone who then makes from what I understand, the situation, anti-Trump rhetoric, right? In any way, someone who is not in, in a position of, of power any longer, an official one at least, um, what message does that then send? And so what what will the future look like? And so with the statement um, that was made uh, previously, what was it? Um, what did they say? Oh, the walk about it being a walk. Um, I almost agree with them because it almost sounds like them telling her, her what's about to happen, you know, like we are standing back. <laughs> Good luck, you know, because in those positions, generally you, you, you have like party solidarity, right? You're looking to support each other. You have like your united front. You're speaking on on the issues that you've all agreed um, to to back and speak on. And so it's kind of like a, a very good luck. Um, and I think we've seen in the past couple of years um, the idea of appealing to the logic or the reason if you don't have the, the the power backing really of your entire party it will even be tough to appeal to the logic of or reason of people because they will do anything in their power to make sure that that message stops at you you know so it'll be really interesting to see how that how that goes forward um i think it's a very brave move on her part um because it likely will be a lonely road, especially if you've been working together for so long. So it'll be interesting to see the direction that that goes in. Um, yeah. So there's this also counter argument that uh, some Republicans have been making. I've heard Jim Jordan say it uh, in, an, in an MSNBC interview 
uh, McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who may win the speakership if things go well for the GOP next year, uh, also made this argument. And that is, you know, relitigating the past, uh, you know, bringing up this whole debacle about whether the election was stolen or not. That's only hurt. That's not that's not productive. Let's just keep moving. Uh, but, you know, and honestly, they never really addressed that. You know, they just kept moving forward. And and January the 6th happened in the wave of emotion. Everyone was in agreement in the aftermath in the immediate aftermath of that. Uh, and then as time starts to alleviate some of the, 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 the close trauma memory that these folks have, then all of a sudden we're back into this 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 position where everyone's going to their separate corners and you, you have two separate ideas as to what took place. Uh, McCarthy said, each day spent relitigating the past is one less day uh, we have to seize the future. Uh, he wrote this in a letter to his colleagues ahead of the vote uh, that took place yesterday. He said, if we are to succeed in stopping the radical Democrat agenda from destroying our country, these internal conflicts need to be resolved so as not to distract, I'm sorry, not to detract uh, from the efforts of our collective team. And then we also have Representative Ken Buck of Colorado saying, um, you know, that basically the same thing. Uh, he was a, he's a member of the House Freedom Caucus who voted to certify the election results. Um, I want to get your thoughts on this idea that, you know, any any kind of talk about this, was it stolen, was it not stolen, just should be avoided altogether because this is just not productive. I don't, I don't know. Coming from a group that investigated Benghazi for years um, and anything that, you know, uh, they can get their hands on, it turns into... Um, a marathon of 15, 20 investigations, even if none of them turn up anything, uh, I, I would have to come to the conclusion that they're avoiding something because they see the danger there. Um, they know that the coming investigations that the Democrats have for them are likely to turn up close ties to not only the inaction or the actions on January 6th, and most of them, are, well, I shouldn't say most of them, but many of them will have their hands dirty uh, in it. Uh, I, I think one of the things that we're noticing in, in, in its totality is that um, the GOP is, is very good at sticking together and sticking to a story. And, you know, that's, that's a, a level of discipline that the Democrats would do well to learn. To your point, um, you know, I'm thinking about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, you know, that was way before the Trump era. Jasmine? No, I was I was totally going to agree. I was definitely going to say that um, regardless of how true it is or not, um, regardless of if, if their leadership is saying to stay away from it, you have those people that are still going to continue to tote that because they have people in their district that eat that up. That, that is their bread and butter. They love hearing that. They love being fired up. They love being told that, Democrats are evil and they're the ones that are taking their health care and, you know, not allowing them to be able to do the things that they want to do. Um, so there is going to continue. I do think that as um, um, as we continue on and prepare for the midterms, Democrats are going to have to find their messaging um, in trying to not like hold them accountable, but to also say, listen, we're moving forward and our our attention does not need to be on these people in these offices. We need to make sure that we're getting those voter reform um, bills and stuff pushed through because that's the real problem. That's why all of this is going on. That's why the uh, the GOP is um, deflecting and all the rest of this stuff. 
the, there are Republicans in these state legislatures that are putting past all of these voting rights laws that are making it incredibly hard for people of color and different precincts all across this country to be able to vote for in the midterm election. That's why you see them continuing to tote this big fat lie as if it is the Bible. It, like, honestly, that is going to be the main reason why you see so many Republicans energized to go out to vote um, next uh, next year for the midterms. Um, I also feel like, you know, there is this fear of not wanting to go back to the past because, you know, there is they, they also want to protect, you know, the integrity of the political system. And if there is any question about whether or not the election was fraudulent, that's something that takes away from the legitimacy of the system. Um, so, but I do agree that, you know, this is gonna continue, whether there's an investigation or not, there's going to be people who still hold these conspiracy theories. So it's distracting us from a lot of the more pressing issues that affect people who look like us. Um, so I just feel like, you know, in regards to priority, these are the more pressing issues that should be of focus, especially with this new administration and not going back to be distracted by, you know, all of the gander and everything. So I, I oh, Camilla, go ahead. I was just going to say really quickly, there are also people who ran on these fallacies, right? So there's also a level of maintenance that we're doing as a party too, because it's funny they're calling it like a big lie. It's because we kind of have to differentiate because there were a lot of lies going through. This just happened to be the big one, you know? And so I feel like there's also that. There's, there's a whole bunch that went on that they're like, we're going to have to figure messaging out in order to maintain this because we can't just poof, say, ah, you know, you can't say huge things like that and then expect, you know, you know, and then expect that you don't have to then keep figuring that out. It's also really interesting. Uh, I know we're going to be talking about voting rights a little bit later. It's also really interesting, the concept of like election fraud. There's something wrong with the election system. And then we're like, hey, what if we fix the election system? And they're like, whoa, 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 <laughs> you know, so that's going to be an interesting conversation, too. But yeah, I, I do want to pivot to, you know, the, the Senate fight over voting rights because, you know, Senate Republicans, you know, were planning to brand the, the SR1 bill, which would be the uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, they were going to brand it as politically motivated, a politically motivated federal takeover of the election system that would make elections more chaotic and less secure. Uh, and that, you know, just echoes the insecurity people seem to be expressing about uh, how the last cycle went. Uh, and this is according to a messaging document uh, that was circulating by aides, uh, I'm sorry, circulating to aides by Senate rules of uh, Republicans that uh, was obtained. Uh, so the Senate Republicans were looking to focus on the bill's requirement that states allow voters to fill out a sworn affidavit if they don't have an ID. Uh, Republicans argued that that would render state voter ID laws meaningless uh, and, they, and they cite that, you know, that would be taking power away from the states as well. Uh, who have enacted these laws. Um, so they, they they said that the For the People Act actually getting signed into law, uh, you know, has a very slim ch chance of happening. Senator Joe Manchin still hasn't endorsed it. Uh, 
And even if he eventually does, the bill has no chance of getting the 10 GOP votes needed to overcome the legislative filibuster. Um, remember that 60 vote threshold that, you know, seems to be the magic number now. What are your thoughts on this fight, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how, how do we move forward, uh, the Democratic side moving forward to push this through if you don't have the 10 votes, um, you know, and, and being that you have this, it seems like a national campaign uh, uh, to, to create insecurity about the way elections are run uh, in this country. Um, it's really funny, I think, uh, the sort of reform that would happen through this bill being described as uh, being chaotic or whatever. And it's like anybody who is labeling it as that, I feel like has not experienced or is coming from a, from a space where they have not experienced firsthand uh, voter suppression, right? Because we remember what 2018 looked like. We remember what 2018 looked like, especially in the South, where we had in, in, in Northern Alabama for during a, a race that, that we, we had worked on up there, um, we had students, right? Students who technically had registered to vote using a state issued ID, but because of just a few additional details, 70% of the folks who we had registered to vote had come back as inactive, right? So now, now they're arriving with additional paperwork that they have to fill out in order for their for their vote to even count that day, right? Now it's just at one university. And, and mind you, these are all historically black universities based in the South, right? And so then in another university, we're also, I, I wanna say that the other number was like 30% of them had come back as inactive. So we're, we're already facing sort of all these things Things. Um, and then in addition, in addition to that, um, with if you know anything about about like where DMVs or these um, buildings where people would get these ideas are ideas are placed, right? What sort of neighborhoods, which ones had been closed down and stuff like that. So my question always is, it's like when people want to shoot something down but are not concerned with finding some sort of alternative solution, then they're not actually here to find solutions at all. Right, because if you are still concerned with maintaining the integrity of the voting system, you're also going to be concerned with making sure that everybody has the right to vote and everybody has access to the vote. Right. And so by providing then no alternative to that, I'd have to ask you, what do you really want here? Are you looking to help or are you looking to just shoot down and continue to suppress certain people's votes and maintain power? Yeah, 100% agree with you. I think. You know, this this question is almost not even a question because the Republicans clearly come out and say if more people vote, we'll lose. They've, I mean, Trump has said it. Um, they, they reiterate it all the time. Um, I don't even understand how it's even a question anymore because they say it explicitly now. It's not even hiding it like they used to in the 50s and 60s and things like that. Um, will it get passed? I, I, I really believe that the key to more stuff being passed is going to be not really capitulating to a Republican requests, but going forward with these investigations. There was a push in the first 100 days of the Biden administration to get things done. There's always a push to see how much we can get done, how many things we can do, how much landmark things we can do to prove to our voters that we are in Washington doing what they sent us to do. Now is the legislative part. This is the time when the elbows get ashy and people get down to work. Um, and I would like for the Biden people to not really think about what they can do to get this passed, but really do a PR campaign and, and do something to kind of uh, move things a little bit more than they are. Because right now, 
we're still going to be we're still dealing with an ex-president's not being able to get on Facebook in Florida. We're still talking about whether we should um, prosecute people for breaking and entering into our nation's capital, scaling walls, beating policemen to near death or to death, and spraying things in their eyes and assaulting people. We're still dealing with that. Um, and those should, were, are, would normally be open and shut cases if it was uh, the other way around, right? If it was some liberal people who jumped the walls and scaled walls and sprayed bear spray in people's eyes, we'd be talking death penalty, right? Right now we're talking about can we prosecute them at all and wasting a lot of time. But this is something that I would like not to shame, to shame the Republicans into doing, but to come out on record to say that they don't want more people to vote and they don't want the democratic uh, process to be inclusive of all people, I think would be something that would be a powerful uh, a message in, in, in the midterms. So I, I have to ask this question, you know, can Democrats uh, actually get this bill passed before the midterms? Uh, you know, it's time against them uh, in this respect. I wouldn't waste I, I, I hate to say it because this is such a major portion, but there's so many priorities. I mean, Democrats are playing from behind. I mean, they they literally had four years of chaos, right? I mean, everything from the Supreme Court to even the salt deductions in these northeastern, mainly Democratic states. There's just so a pandemic going on. Um, there, there's so much that the Democrats have in front of them. I don't know where to start. So I would say any of them, you know, a victory on any of them is a victory on all of them, in, in my in my opinion. Anyone else? I'll be the optimistic person and say I pray that that's something that can happen. Um, you know, just being a congressional staffer, you always just hope whether it's something small. Like somebody go and talk to their representative and say, listen, this is how this has impacted me. Or somebody gets it in their ear to help persuade them um, to support this legislation. You know, we always hold out that hope or, you know, being able to kind of like um, negotiate. You know, you give me this. We'll be able to give you this on a different a different bill. You know, we're, we're hoping for those things. And, you know, I'm going to be optimistic and say I, I really do hope that it gets passed. Um John Lewis was a giant and everything that he stood for, um, you know, is in this essentially is in this bill. Um, he died basically begging for our democracy to be saved. So um, knowing those things, you, you would hope that people can, you know, put aside all the foolishness and do that. But like like it was said earlier, if more people turn out to vote, Republicans know they're going to lose. So that is why I really think this, you know, it won't, it won't pass, but you know, I'm always holding out that hope. And and also when we're when we're doing things like making it illegal to pass out water to elderly people who have been standing in line for over six hours in order to vote, like it's very clear again, <laughs> you just don't want people voting. And and I think that, that yeah, it's just unfortunate. <laughs> I think that's an yeah. example. That's an example of how people don't know either, because the, the the vast majority of Americans have no idea that people actually wait six hours to vote because they walk in, they vote, they get their sticker and they're home. They're in their car before their ice cream can melt. 
that they just bought from um, Baskin Robbins. So it, 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 it again, it's it's one of those things where um, it's a local thing where local people have to make a, a bigger noise to show people what's actually going on in their part of town. Because I don't think uh, people who are not minorities or not black have ever stayed in line for six hours, seven hours to vote. So, you know, as a recent law graduate, and I'm sure, you know, Tope has the same concern. I'm thinking, even if this bill passes, right, even if you get the For the People Act to be passed into law, are we headed for a scenario where the now six to three uh, conservative, uh, you know, Supreme Court will strike it down because it says, they, they say, well, this is a violation of uh, the state's rights. Um, because remember, once they remove Section uh, 4B and Section 5 from the Voting Rights Act, um, you know, it was kind of like all off to the races for states to enact laws like the the the, 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 the bill enacted in Georgia, like the bill that Ron DeSantis signed on you know in front of the Fox News cameras uh, last week. Um, are we headed for that scenario in your view, or or are we looking at a, a situation where you know legislation can be carefully crafted to ensure that um, you know can kind of skirt around any kind of possible argument that the Supreme Court can make? about an infringement of voting rights on the state's part. Don't all jump in. I'll, I'll definitely leave that for you lawyers. You know, I'm, I'm the lonely businessman to talk about, yeah. Um, I can go. I feel like, you know, there always is that possibility. Um, that the conservative, well, the now conservative Supreme Court can can strike it down. Um, there's definitely going to be attempts um, with cases being brought to the Supreme Court um, for that purpose. Um, but you know, again, I feel like because of how ridiculous a lot of the um, a lot of the cases, such as you know making it illegal to pass around water bottles when folks are standing in lines to vote. It, it comes to a point where it's undeniably voter suppression um, just due to the extremity of these cases. Cause this is, cause things like that, just passing around water, that's ridiculous. I, and I feel like the reasonable person can agree to that. Um, so, you know, if there is some sort of, if there is a case that is brought to the Supreme Court, um, you know, who really can know? Um, but I feel like I'm optimistic in that the you know the bill won't be shut down by the court. And and that's a good point. I was thinking, you know, also you know the factors that we had to go through in the environmental justice clinic. One of them was that you know if there's a if there's a, a substantial likelihood that this has a particular impact on a specific demographic, um, and if there's a history behind it, you know we have a history of voter discrimination in this country that you don't have to go far to find, um, and and then you know you obviously will have a, a specific uh, demographic targeted uh, differently than the others uh, if this bill you know takes flight and we start to see the effects of it in oncoming elections. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I would think that's a legitimate argument to make in terms of saying, well, we, the, the Supreme Court needs to reevaluate the way it's looking at these voting bills. You know, the, the states can't have just unrestricted 
power as it pertains to this voting, uh, as it pertains to folks uh, voting rights under the due process clause, under the equal protection clause. Um, and we saw, you know, these kinds of arguments being made on behalf of the conservative party as it pertained to Bush versus Gore. Remember the argument there was that this was an infringement of uh, equal protection rights because votes counted differently in different counties um, somehow are a violation of these rights. So I think it's going to be interesting going forward. But regardless, both sides, the stakes couldn't be higher for both sides as it pertains to this issue. Uh, but I want to pivot a little bit uh, to you know an issue that I've had to deal with even on my way to, to do this show. And that is the fact that we're dealing with the gasoline shortage. Um, and, and, you know, gasoline shortages caused by panic buying after the shutdown of the colonial pipeline spread across the Southeast region of the United States this yesterday, Wednesday, as the Biden administration sought to reassure consumers, it was easing uh, a raft of rules to speed delivery of the fuel supplies. Uh, the pipeline shipments were stopped on Friday uh, after a ransomware attack on the company's IT systems uh, prompting drivers in several states to swarm to gas stations, uh, one of which I just came out of, in several states to swarm uh, to get to other gas stations, uh, draining inventories and leading the White House to waive uh, pollution rules. And I want to get your thoughts. You know, is the Biden administration adequately addressing this issue? Um, you know, is this something that they should have seen coming? Is this something that they should have prepared for in advance? Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, here here we go again with another cyber attack that um, we, we, we've been saying was coming for decades and now it's here and we're not unprepared. I think <clears throat> Biden administration can do everything to put a Band-Aid on it, um, but it's, it's something that is a long-term cancer that hasn't been dealt with, and that's that we are vulnerable to cyber attacks. We have to put as much money as we're putting into building bombs, building aircraft carriers, into making the, the country safe from cyber attacks. Now, for whatever reason, I don't know. We, we keep falling into this every few months, and panic buying is the new uh, um, stimulus for these organizations, these companies. So I didn't see any of the companies like Mobile Exxon or any of them coming out and uh, with warnings not to, for people to put gas in plastic bags and Tupperware containers uh, and, and things like that, which is probably what needs to happen um, rather than Joe Biden, uh, who is he, um, to speak to people in states that didn't vote for him. So I'm also going to just put it out there. Um, the previous office holder made it to where we cannot, you know, put resources into the programming that we need to make sure these things don't happen, right? We had the last four years of, um, there wasn't a cyber attack, there wasn't any attacks on our elections in 2016, when everything pointed to that, you know, that actually did happen. So when you go from laying the foundation, like the Obama administration and probably the administration before that, and trying to build up that arsenal, um, and the resources to try to, you know, combat these things if it happens. And then you have somebody that comes into the office and is like, well, no, that's not true. These things are fake. And they drain all of that money, all of those resources to put all of that money towards military and guns and helicopters and parades to show that we're strong. You're, you're taking away from the things that we actually need, which are those digital infrastructures to be able to combat that. And we also can talk about how, 
you know, um, you know, Republicans in the GOP love talking about um, the government shouldn't be involved in some of these business entities and how they run their business um, and things like that. But then stuff like this happens and then they're like, help, we need help. Can somebody help me? You can't have it both ways. Like there needs to be structure for you to be held accountable when these things happen. So we, we're not the ones that are responsible for getting you out of this mess. And then when you're out of it, you're like, phew, now we can go back to doing what we were doing before y'all, you know, helped us get out of this mess in the first place. There needs to be some type of accountability for those organizations and those corporations um, who are um, allowing, not allowing these things, but aren't putting those safeguards in place. Um, to be able to combat these type of uh, cyber attacks. Yeah, I think especially going off of um, what Jasmine said, especially right now, after the year that we had in 2020, after the election, after the the um, capital storming, and unfortunately, um, you know, and even in still suffering from a lot of um, what the pandemic um, brought to us in terms of health, safety, um, economic um, issues, we're, we're kind of really, really needing to make sure that we are uh, maintaining uh, you know, the, the U.S. citizens, like, sort of, what's the word, um, just their, their trust in, like, in their own, in, in public safety, right? So we're, we're facing all these things, and, and people are starting to find, like, that hope, that comfort, they're starting to become settled again, and now people are, are like, girl, I didn't even know the gas could get hacked, you know? Like, these are just new things that we didn't even, you know, know to see coming, just another thing to add to the list. So I think that they're not understanding the impact it is just on, like, our, our, their, our if nothing else, the public's view on how much we actually have in control right now. But I also want to also say this, the Biden administration is putting out so many different fires at once. I'm not saying that they, they can't be held accountable, but I'm also saying we have to extend them a little, not much, a little bit of grace because they are literally unraveling all of the threads that Trump and his his cronies left behind the mess with our climate when we're talking about um, the things that happened with um, the um, the arms deal that they pulled us away from so many different little things that the everyday people don't know about that lawmakers know about um, that are dealing with military infrastructure. Um, when you talk about that ridiculous tax cut, all of those things, they're trying to undo all of that and now this is just something else that they have to worry about. So we have to give them a little bit, not much, but a little bit of grace to try to figure this out. Um, and then, you know, let's say a couple more days, if they haven't really given us a solid plan, then we can say, listen, y'all got to get it together. Okay. Y'all didn't do it, Joe. Y'all didn't do it. We need y'all to do it. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, this is significant because, you know, for folks wondering what's so important about the Colonial Pipeline, uh, the shutdown of this pipeline, uh, which supplies nearly half the gasoline, diesel and jet fuel consumed on the East Coast alone, has raised question of whether the federal government has had adequate oversight, as we've been discussing, uh, of the cyber risks facing U.S. infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, I, I want to also point to the fact that remember the transition period, you really had a, a non-cooperative incumbent administration work, you know, they were not cooperative in terms of handing off vital information to the incoming administration. And when you go back to the 2000 uh, transition, uh, sorry, 2001 transition between uh, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, the CIA actually pinpointed that the prolonged process of that election, you know, remember it was until December 7th, I believe that Al Gore actually conceded because of the Supreme Court 
ruling Bush versus Gore, all of that drama that took place actually contributed to the elimination of time. And then terrorists were able to plot even more undetected, um, which led to the September 11th uh, attacks the following year. Um, so this is very important. You know, it, it's not like we're reaching for some kind of reason to blame Trump. We're, we're seeing that con there are consequences, real tangible consequences of not having uh, outgoing and incoming administrations cooperating with each other and handing off vital and imp important information. Uh, I think that also played a role as it pertains to the cyber attack. Any other thoughts before we transition real quick? I think there's a normal gas price raise around this time of year anyway. Leading into Memorial Day, uh, it's the most traveled weekend of the year. Um, you're, you're always, gas prices are going to spike. This is a little bit abnormal because of the cut down of the pipeline. I just think the word pipeline itself has been used as a political hammer. Everyone thinks of the Keystone Pipeline and the thousands of jobs that were promised with it that really were only hundreds of jobs and really were still going to really neglect and put us in a place where we weren't. So I think the word pipeline is being used and people are going back to Keystone when they think of this. So another interesting topic is that Senate Democrats are actually signaling that they are unlikely to extend the $300 federal uh, weekly unemployment benefit past the month of September, uh, especially if the economy continues to improve. Uh, Senate Major Majority Leader now, Chuck Schumer, said uh, during a, a press conference two days ago, Tuesday, uh, that there was overwhelming support among Democrats to keep providing the additional money to existing unemployment insurance, but not every member of his caucus is on board with this, particularly after last week's uh, weaker than expected April jobs report. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin uh, in particular said that he will not, he's not willing uh, to actually extend uh, these, these benefits uh, past September 6th. He said, in quote, uh, I'll never vote for another extension as long as I know that the vaccines, um, I'm sorry, as long as I know that with the vaccines, there's not an excuse for no one to be vaccinated. Um, he said, I understand there's millions of jobs in America that we can't fill right now. So we need people back to work. That's more and more people understanding there's more and more people understanding that we're in trouble. Uh, he previously expressed hesitation over the benefit. Um, you know, you also have Senate Republicans who are not expected to support another extension. So without Manchin's vote, Democrats wouldn't be able to pass the added benefit through reconciliation. Um, so there's also some hesitation among moderates in the House. Um, and when asked whether House Democrats had the votes to extend benefits, one moderate Democrat uh, responded, God, I hope not. I wanna get your response on, you know, what this motive could possibly be uh, but behind moderate Democrats not voting for an extension of the $300 unemployment check, because I'm under the assumption that, look, if you produce results for folks, um, that's really what's going to help you in the long run in terms of political advantage. Uh, people want to see results, and especially in times of crisis, and especially in times of unemployment, widespread unemployment, uh, they want to see uh, the government doing something on their behalf. Um, and so I want to get your thoughts as to what you could possibly make sense of in terms of any possible motive behind moderate Democrats taking this position? Um, and, you know, where do you see, you know, do you see any kind of likely path for there to be any kind of extension of this? Being that Manchin has taken the position he he has, and without his vote, and without the Republicans, reconciliation doesn't seem to be possible. Um, I think when we, when, when, when we're thinking about um, those benefits and who they impact, you have to think about the people that, um, one, that look like all of us on the screen, right? Um, these are the people that 
um, had those um, essential worker jobs that may or may not have been laid off because um, they contracted COVID and they no longer can work because they have after effects of COVID. So they're needing some type of income to come in to help them um, stay afloat, even if it's $300. Those $300 matter to those people in whatever state that is. Um, so when we're, when we're talking about this and we're having this discussion, um, we do know that whenever there is something that is not too good to be true, when there's something that's going on, you're always going to have some bad actors that are taking um, advantage or abusing a certain system. Um, we're, we're seeing that with these PPP loans, um, people that are claiming to have businesses, but they ain't got no businesses. They ain't got no license. They don't have anything. But because they're in such a dire need for money, they're willing to do whatever it takes to be able to feed their children. And it may, unfortunately, a lot of them may not feel like they can um, rely on their member of Congress to speak up for them or have their back or kind of go through the proper channels to negotiate and do all of these things. That's taking too long. By the time you're done negotiating and trying to kiss the feet of the king, me and my kids laying out on the highway with nowhere to go. So I'm thinking like that is why like I think a lot of these members aren't being mindful of that. They're not being mindful that you have people that are really struggling. Like I know personally, there are a lot of people that I know that are dealing with after effects of COVID. They still have a lot of the symptoms. They're having coughs. They're having chills, COVID toe, all of that different stuff. They are still dealing with that. And because of that, they're not able to work. They're not able to work at their grocery store. They're not able to work at their little mom and pop shop. So they, they have to do what they can to be able to survive. So unfortunately, they're seeing a lot of different uh, reports and things come out that people are abusing that system. And that may be one of the reasons why they're wanting to go ahead and sever those ties in September. Um, so I have several thoughts about this. Um, first of all, I feel like, you know, there has to be that question as to why um, and I feel like the moderate Democrats, the reason why they don't want to extend um, the unemployment benefits is because they feel like this is gonna disincentivize folks to work and that people who are receiving the unemployment checks are making more, potentially making more than people who are who actually are working and have a job and whatever the case may be. But I feel like that isn't, that doesn't really get to the root of the issue. Um, these employers should be giving people higher wages, um, letting people be able to, you know, live off. They shouldn't be able to have multiple jobs in order to make the amounts you would get from an unemployment check. Um, and so I feel like there's more structural issues that are at the root cause of these things. And then also accessibility of the vaccine. Um, you know, there is still distrust about the vaccine from the black community um, and other communities that have this distrust for the government, quite frankly. And I feel like there's a lot of things that still needs to be addressed and talked about. Um, so with the Democrats now saying that they don't want to extend um, these employment benefits, I just feel like that's that's a mistake. And a lot of people are going to suffer from that. 
Um, a lot of people are still working through, you know, as Jasmine said, the effects of ha having had COVID. Um, and it's not just that somebody has a vaccine and now everything is fine. Like that process doesn't happen overnight. Um, so people still need time to get better, to find a job. Um, and even past September, who knows what it's gonna look like. Sure, the economy is now getting better, but we still don't know. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. There's still, today, the CDC released another statement about you know how masks are to be worn again. So it's like a lot of things are still coming up and it's just too early to just have all of these unemployment, all of these employment benefits being taken away from the people who need it the most. So, oh, Ego, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I hate to sound like Andrew Yang, uh, my, my, my friend here who is running for uh, mayor in, in New York, um, but technology has displaced so many jobs and wages have not risen. So this was this this pandemic one of I guess if there was any bright side is it's given real a real opportunity for us to use governmental means to right some of the wrongs that technology has wrought all over our economy. And while three hundred dollars a week might not be a lot to some people in New York, that's uh your transportation money for the week. Um to a lot of people, that is a meaningful sum of money that is going to then go into business. So instead of looking at it as a handout, it's really a stimulus for business. I don't see a lot of people taking that $300 and sitting on it and uh, putting it in an account and investing it in Bitcoin. A lot of people are using that to pay off the bills that they couldn't pay, pay off credit, um, and buy things that they've been not buying because they didn't have the money. So instead of the Democrats viewing it like that, I would make the case that it's actually going to be a depressant on the economy if those funds all of a sudden disappear from circulation. Um, I also think it's unfortunate that during one of the largest economic, uh, what's the word, um, you know, one crises, there we go, one of the largest economic crises um, that, our, that our country has seen in this history, um, in a space where I feel like we should be doing more, we have people like Senator Manchin trying to figure out how we can do less for the American people. Because we also have to remember, what did we get? A total of $3,200 over the course of almost, if not, what is it, May of over a year, right? In terms of economic relief for people who are struggling. And even just with unemployment, there are people who are falling through the cracks there too, where people who didn't necessarily qualify for unemployment but because they had so much anxiety around COVID chose to quit their jobs, right? Are now having trouble finding employment after making that decision, but don't qualify for unemployment because they made the choice to quit. There are people like that falling through the cracks every day who are afraid to get their mother, their grandmother, their grandfather sick if they continue to work. Things like that, right? Where they just may not 
have qualified at the time, depending or on whatever their personal circumstances were. So in a time where I feel like we should be doing everything we can to make sure taxpaying citizens, right, are are covered in the event of a crisis, we're instead, in cho we're instead choosing how we can pay people less, right? How we can do less for people's literal survival, right? Because even we're also the, the health impact, right? We also have to remember we're paying for healthcare still. You know, we don't know what people's money is going to. So a conversation around $300 almost seems insulting. I I, I almost want to say evil, really, when we're when, we, when we're taking away. Y'all feel what I'm saying? Like, I just I can't I can't even believe that, that, that that's a part of the discussion when we're still in a place where we are have not by any means recovered from the impact of what we've been through as a nation. So I, I think that that's really unfortunate um, on Mansion and everyone else's um, part who is thinking at all to instead lower the funding that we're providing people. And just really quickly, let's also remember that um, during the pandemic when members were back, they didn't pass that $15 um, minimum wage um, to increase it. That could have not, you know, fixed all of our problems, but at least made it a little bit better for everyday Americans to be able to actually afford to live in the cities and the towns that they are in right now. And it, a lot of people do not, I really don't think a lot of people pay attention to this, but you have members that are millionaires that don't have to worry about that $300 that your big mama need for her insulin or her blood, um, her blood pressure medicine. They $300 is like $3 to them. It does not matter to them because they're not the ones that are being affected by it. But the people that are in those in those cities, in those towns are. And I think that is something that we also have to be mindful of when you're calling your member. Like, hey, I know you don't care about me getting my $300, but this is why I care about it or why I need it. Um, so you have to really do and we have to encourage um, more people to make those phone calls and do it constantly, not every once in a while, but constantly to get that point across that you need not only that $300, but we need to increase the um, federal minimum wage. So the last topic of the night, and I really wanted to get to this, is that, you know, less than 12 hours after Glenn Young, I'm sorry, after Glenn Youngkin locked down the GOP nomination for Virginia governor on Monday night, former President Donald Trump finds himself worming into the uh, gubernatorial race in that state. Uh, he says, Glenn is a pro-business, pro-Second Amendment, pro-veterans, pro-America uh, candidate. He knows how to make Virginia's economy rip-roaring. And he has my complete and total endorsement. My first thought was, how is this state? How are these statements even coming out if he's banned on social media? Like, who's releasing these things? But besides that, Trump wrote in a statement Tuesday morning uh, that was circulated by his political action committee. Uh, he, his endorsement came um, after Yunkin um, seemed to uh, emerge from a contentious nominating battle, seeking to lock down the Republican base. But unlike states like Arkansas or South Carolina. Uh, which are red states that Trump has already made endorsements in the 22, uh, sorry, 2022 gubernatorial race. Uh, the former president's support in Virginia carries more risks than benefits, it seems. Um, remember, the, the Democratic Party seems to have a stronghold in this state. This is the first time since 1994 uh, where Democrats have complete co control of Richmond. Um, when you, know, you, you also have Ralph Northam still in his seat, despite many calls for him to resign in the aftermath of a blackface photo emerging in 2019. 
Um, I want to get your thoughts because in addition to this endorsement by Trump, you also have a Republican saying that he needs to actually kind of uh, uh, thread the needle here and kind of like do the, you know, not offend the Trump base, but at the same time, not offend the uh, moderate traditional Republican base. Um, but you have someone, you know, um, who works on this campaign um, saying, you know, he doesn't have the personality. This is Ron White, a Republican state central committee member and a co-chair of the Northern uh, Virginia Republican Business Forum. He said he doesn't have the personality. He's a typical suburban dad and a very faith-based Christian. Uh, and I want to get your thoughts on, you know, is this a proxy of what to expect in terms of, you know, next year's election cycle? Um, will we have people who, you know, like candidate Youngkin, um, don't want or kind of seem a little squeamish to embrace a Trump endorsement? And would that serve against them? No, I, 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 nobody else will go. I'll go. I, I, uh, well, Virginia is always a weird place. Uh, you, you basically have, you have a governor and a lieutenant governor who are both, you know, had calls for them to resign and still managed to swim out of those troubled waters and actually govern and do well, actually, in the, in the aftermath of what went on. Um, can Young can win? Maybe all the Virginia elections have been closed for the last, I don't even know how many um, cycles. Um, the presidential, the government, everything is typically very close. It's, it's typically not a dominant election. Will Trump swing it one way or another? Who knows? Because I don't, you know, what happens if there's some sort of prosecution that goes against Trump? That's very likely to happen with all the things. Um, there's all of his endorsements turn bad. Yeah, it could happen. Um, political stuff happens that way. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't take it too seriously. I'd be more concerned about who the Democrats end up running against him. Uh, that, that'll say more about the, 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 the likelihood of that being a, a win or not. Um, I don't look at Virginia as a true bellwether um, state anymore. Um, I think what he is probably going to end up doing is distancing his himself, right? I think what he's going to do is um, speak to those people. Um, like you said, Mike, he is a good Christian father. He loves the Lord and that is what he's sticking to. We know regardless of all of the things that we've seen over the last four years that that is not true for Trump. He will go wherever the wind blows him, just like his friends um, over in the House and in the Senate. Um, so um, I think what it, this um, this um, candidate is going to do is he's going to um, stick to those bread and butter issues that every day um, Republicans care about, even though you are going to, you know, you're going to have those that are more um, radicalized by Trump. Um, and in, in his base, um, I feel like in Virginia, you're going to have some of those people that are just going to hear him out um, just because of him um, being that father, that suburban father, that church going father um, who cares about the Second um, Amendment, who cares about your um, your your rights and your rights to bear arms. I think if he sticks to those talking points, um, rather he gets Trump support or not doesn't matter because, you know, 
he just has to keep his eye on getting the vote count that he needs to be able to uh, win the election um, in Virginia. Any other thoughts? Um, just to, yeah, just to answer your question more directly, um, I feel like, you know, a, in the future, we're going to see a lot of Republican candidates who are embraced by Trump be more neutral. So they won't exactly embrace his endorsement, but they also won't speak ill of Trump, um, you know, just to appease to both sides. Um, and, you know, I feel like that's will be the safest option for these Republican candidates because of how split even the Republican Party is right now, um, at least for the next couple of years. If there are no other thoughts, I want to go ahead and thank this uh, outstanding panel tonight. I, I so wish Professor uh, Andrews could have been a part of the conversation. But of course, you know, we, we've seen, you know, technical problems happen. Uh, but I'm hoping to have him, you know, soon. This would be the last episode of, of the political mic for a long while. Uh, so I'm glad to have ended for the season, I guess, uh, with the panel that I had tonight. Such a dynamic, such an engaging and thought-provoking uh, group of folks. So thank you all so much. I, lo I look forward to, uh, you know, having you back on if you're willing. Um, and I'm going to encourage those who view, you know, as I do every week, to stay engaged with reputable sources of information. Challenge your own sources of information. That's the only way in which we can really uh, be engaged citizens and make intelli intelligent decisions when we go into that voting booth, uh, when we exercise our rights, when we decide what we stand for. Um, there's so many outlets out there that would, you know, play on our passions, play on our emotions and, you know, take us one way or the other. And we have to be cautious of that. You know, algorithms that calculate our moves on social media are just play into that. So I want to go ahead and encourage uh, you folks to uh, stay engaged. I look forward to hearing from you each soon. Um, I look forward to keeping up with your moves um, in each of your respective fields and disciplines. Uh, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude uh, this episode uh, no, episode 39, episode 39, I can't believe it, of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all so much. Have a good evening. Mm -hmm.